um, on election. So thankful for this passage in your ESV Bible. It says God's sovereign choice um, there at the beginning. And uh, and I just think this is, I hope, today. Mark calls it a warm blanket. I hope it is for you today. And um, it's certainly a great passage to grapple with, to uh, think about. And I really, really hope to enjoy. Josh, would you read... Um, how about going 1 to 18? How about reading the whole context there? And um, and then, Lord willing, we'll get uh, continue next week with some further um, insights. But if you would read that, and Grant, you pray, we'll, we'll, we'll go to work. Sure. Romans 9, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and that we can gather as a local body and discuss Romans once again so freely, openly, and safely. And Father, thank you for our local church that you have sovereignly uh, brought together all the members here, Father, and thank you for the encouragement it is to to trace those um, threads of how everyone got here, Father, and and also how we all came to know you. Um, It seems even more vivid in light of this passage today, Father, and thank you for this word, and uh, it is a quite difficult section, Father, but a truly wonderful section of your word, and so I pray that our discussion today would be glorifying to you, that it would be right and accurate uh, and clearly stated, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Certainly, uh, if someone had introduced this topic to me before I was at Bible College, I don't remember it, um, and I, I... Certainly the first time that uh, someone brought up the, the idea that God was sovereign in election, 
Uh, It bristled me for sure more than that. I couldn't believe that anybody (laughs) thought like that, and certainly I was not at all convinced until um, Scripture just kept doing the work uh, on my own heart um, and not knowing where everybody is um, on this topic. It is certainly our students in school love talking about it. It's just so intriguing. It's so interesting. I don't, for some reason, it's interesting to me that um, I don't think we have problems seeing God's sovereignty in almost any other area, right? That God's sovereign in, I don't know, the weather or uh, creating the universe, those sort of things. But once you start talking about election, that God's sovereign in that, then that kind of makes our uh, feathers ruffled a little bit. And uh, and I asked uh, one of the classes one time, I was like, wonder why that is. You know, we we get all hot and bothered about this topic of predestination. And one student who's not at all convinced uh, yet uh, in God's sovereignty and election, he just raised his hand and he said, I just think it goes against my pride. I just think that I really would like to think that I really had something to do with this whole thing. And uh, to think that I didn't just is a little bothersome. And I thought, hey, he's probably, he probably had something there. Um, that, you know, especially in the United States where we have our rights, we think that, hey, wait a second, this is might not be the, the way it would be done, I guess, in Europe where they have kings or queens. This is a little bit easier for folks to uh, um, process maybe. But, um, but that being where it is, verse 6 is where we'd like to start and systematically work here a little bit. Um, and you might remember it is not as though the word of God has failed. And that's the idea that uh, Paul's getting to through this whole thought. Okay, For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. And that's what he's going to go on to um, just in an amazing manner um, and in perfect Pauline manner pinpoint with precision that not all that descended from Israel were true Abraham. And he starts with Abraham's family um, and says that it's not all the natural children that are true Israel, but only children of the promise. Now he gives a couple examples, right? And the first one, I think you can say, all right, he starts with Ishmael and Isaac. He says, Ishmael was not the, the one of the promise, but Isaac was. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. That one makes sense, I think, in our mind, because what? Because Abram went completely illegitimately, had Ishmael with Hagar. But, and so you say, okay, well, that makes sense. That really wasn't from Abraham and Sarah. But then, when he goes to Jacob and Esau, twins, that's when things... Uh, change a little bit, where God says, you know, uh, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated, then that makes us take a step back and say, boy, what is he really saying by this? Any thoughts you guys have, and and Carter, maybe we could even just start with you if you didn't mind, Um, kind of in this this little section here, from 6 to dealing with uh, even up to 12. Yeah, verse 6 and 7, I think the... um 
One thing that Paul's trying to point out is that Israel's unbelief doesn't violate uh, God's promise. So I think Paul is just like reiterating what he's saying in Romans chapter 2 and 28 and 29. Let me just read it right quick. Um, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and the circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. I think it was really, really clear from the old, even from the Old Testament that within the whole nation, the physical ethnic um, nation of Israel, God still preserved a remnant of true believers. All of Israel was not, God never made the promise that all of Israel were, were to be saved, were to be redeemed. But there were those who truly were true uh, Jews, inward and outward, um, like in through and through, they were Jews. They believed and they sought God. They sought Him truly from a uh, true spirit. And many ethnic Israelites were just, you know, they were merely children of the flesh, which Paul always talks about. It's a phrase he, uh, he uses all the time. And you can see several instances of this in 1 Kings 19. We're talking, uh, this is the time of Elijah. And <clears throat> the Lord is talking to Elijah, and Elijah responds to the Lord after the Lord asks Elijah what, what he's up to. And he says, Elijah is saying, I have been very jealous for the Lord, for the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And further down the passage, the Lord reveals to Elijah, quote, in verse 18 of 1 Kings 19, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So we see even in the, the times of the Old Testament, even back to Elijah, that all of Israel was just doused in idolatry and sin, and they did not seek the Lord, and that even within that wicked nation that God had, professed that God had redeemed out of Egypt, even with that within that nation, there was only a small remnant who truly believed. Mm-hmm. And we can see that even in the, um, we can see that play out in the New Testament too. If we go and look at Jesus confronting the Pharisees in chapter 8 of John, they told Jesus that Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. So it's obvious that Every single ethnic Israelite was not a child of the promise. I mean, we see that Ishmael wasn't a, the child of the promise. God said that he would promise a son by Sarah. Sarah decided to take the choice into her own hands. She tries to do it herself, and she lets Abraham go, go into a servant. And so Rebecca, we see the same, does the same thing. She tries to obtain the promise through a deceptive means, through Jacob, when she could have just trusted the Lord to begin with. And I think that uh, that was um, a major takeaway I, I saw in um, those verses, those first few verses in chapter 9. Yeah, Grant, what do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like Paul is, you know, the thesis of this section would be, I think, verse 6, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And so we see this argument that Paul is putting forward would be that not all of Israel are true Israel. 
And then I think in chapter 9, we all know that chapter 9 is dealing with the sovereignty of God. And so that's usually the go-to chapter for a lot of these things. And a lot of times I isolate out God's sovereignty from what's going on in chapter 9. But I think that they're not like this one or the other type thing where you can talk about God's sovereignty, then you can talk about the promises to Israel and all that kind of stuff. But Paul is grounding what's going on with God's word not failing and the promises to Israel with his uh, sovereign, unconditional election of persons and pushing those four together. And in fact, I think he grounds that the word of God has not failed in his sovereign election choice of the true Israel. Uh, And so just to restate a little bit, probably repeating what y'all have already said, Basically, Paul is saying, not all who are Israel are Israel. And you think, okay, well, what does that mean, Paul? What do you mean not all Israel is true Israel? And, and as we said, Abraham had two children. One would be of the flesh, of natural powers, when Abraham got impatient and Sarah got impatient. And with Hagar, the slave woman had Ishmael, who was a child of the flesh. Um, and then there was the child of the promise, a supernatural child that came late in life when Abraham and Sarah were well beyond the years of natural childbirth. And I think that's interesting to, to start to see is God seems to be taking out any sort of human uh, exertion or, or adding in to what's going on for the child of the promise. So Isaac, uh, or Ishmael was the natural born one. He was the, uh, the impatient one, the one that they tried to initiate the promise ahead of time. And then Isaac is almost, he is supernatural. It wasn't natural for Sarah to give birth at that age. So it was all of God putting that forward. And then the same thing in, um, and as, as Jerry said, with Ishmael, you could say, okay, well, his mother was Hagar. Not quite true Israel, even though he's descendant of Abraham. Maybe you could have some fuzziness there, but then he furthers the argument by saying not only that, or but also um, with Rebecca, with the twins. And I think that one is so interesting because I married a twin, for one thing, but the twins... Um, Jacob and Esau. So uh, that's just so interesting to me because twins can be so similar. But in this case, it's not that Jacob and Esau are presented at the end of their life where they have made all these different choices. Like if you've seen my wife and her sister, they seem, they may look similar. Uh, They're identical twins, but they act very differently. They have their own personalities. They've gone through life in different stages. They live in different cities. They're their own people. It's not like God is looking at those two type of people that have done their own thing and then initiating his sovereign choice. It's while they're in the womb, when they have done neither good nor evil. That's when he initiates his sovereign uh, selection of Jacob over Esau, uh, which I thought was very interesting. But um, So the first... Uh, Israel that he's referring to, not all who are Israel are true Israel, would just be ethnic Israel. And the second, the true Israel, refers to a subgroup or a remnant within Israel. Um, and so I think the question would be, what makes someone true Israel versus what makes someone ethnic Israel? And the, the answer is grounded in uh, God's election of some and the passing over of others, uh, and I think I'm losing my train of thought. So y'all help me out here. Yeah, Josh. Yeah, no, I, I think when we look at Romans nine, we talked about this two weeks ago, but just as a way of reminder, uh, it's not a digression in the narrative. Paul is laying this out for us crystal clear that God's promises have not failed; they will uh, come to pass. 
And um, he, he raises that question because the Israelites, God's people, had all these privileges that Grant walked us through. And in verse 4, they had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. But on a large scale, they rejected the Christ. And so the question Paul is now dealing with is, has the word of God failed? Is God's character trustworthy? Can we bank on his promises? And uh, in these studies with or these many um, stories from the Old Testament with Jacob and Esau and with Isaac and Ishmael, Paul is saying election as evidence in these two stories helps answer the question that God's promises have not failed. He's always in the Old Testament elected some to salvation and passed over others. And this is um, the reason why only some of Israel believe. There's a, there's a physical descent of Israel and then there's a there's a smaller spiritual Israel that God has elected unto salvation. And so this is, it's not a new thing. It's an old thing all the way back to the Old Testament that God's people have always been based on God's gracious call, mm-hmm. not ethnic identity. God blesses Isaac, not Ishmael. And then with Jacob and Esau, as you guys mentioned, they had the same mother. They were twins. <clears throat> Everything about them was virtually the same. Um, but their election, God's choosing, wasn't based on their circumstances or actions or things that they had done in their life. It was purely based on God's sovereign call. Love it. And can't you take one step even further back? This is always fascinating to me. Deuteronomy 7, um, to say, okay, even before, why did God choose Israel and not the Philistines or you know all these other groups? So this isn't a brand new Testament idea, like you guys have said. But even if you take further back, why did he choose Israelites in the first place? Not always a satisfying answer. Not to me intellectually. Let me read what it says, Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Okay, so clearly God chose Israel and he didn't choose any of those other nations. Why? Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. So it'd be like, okay, there are the most. Nope, there weren't the most of them. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so, if you're like me, that's not completely satisfying intellectually. Why did he choose them? He chose them because he loved them. And you say, well, isn't there a little bit more than that, though? Can you you give us some more? And uh, this is one of those really, really great times for us to believe what we don't completely understand, right? I think that's what we're, um, we're we're getting to in Romans 9, where we get to with the, the Trinity, we get to in a lot of other t- places where we believe something, even though we don't com- have a completely um, perfect idea of how it works. And, and I don't think Paul does as, as we get um, a little further here. What... We might say, sometimes we hear people say, well, wait a second, though. If God predestined some and not others, 
Now, uh, there can almost be a desire for people to protect God. Like, wait a second, that can't be fair, right? That, that, that God would do that. And I think we can say here, none of us want, and maybe you've listened to Mark and Romans 9 from the upper room. I hope you have. If you haven't, go back and listen to it. He's really good on this topic, on every topic, really. But the idea is that if any of us got what's fair, then none of us get are saved, right? All of us go to hell. That's justice. If we want justice, then none of us are saved. It's only by God's mercy. It's only by God's mercy. And so God gives justice to Ishmael, to Esau, to every unbeliever, right? There's nothing unjust, and that's what Paul's saying here. But he gives an extraordinary mercy that I hope today you don't just pass over. That I hope your heart, as you hear this, as you think about Romans 9, I hope your heart just does leaps and is thrilled with this idea that completely apart from us, completely apart from any of our doing, God shows you, like Ephesians 1 would say, before the beginning of time, right? He foreknew you, he predestined you, he called you effectually, which means you'll be justified and then you'll be glorified, the golden chain. And so it's such a, a just an incredible um, topic there. If you get to verse 10, and not only so, also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet uh, were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. And uh, Carter and Josh, I think you guys both had um, some thoughts on this. It's God's purpose in election, right? It's back to being God-centered. I think it's natural for us, Carter, I'd love to hear you on this. It's natural for us to make salvation man-centered somehow. Like, you know, when you listen to testimony sometimes, it's all about what I did instead of what God's done. It can be. Like, why is that just so, I guess it's natural in us, but what's your take on that? I love your thoughts here. Yeah, I mean... uh... Just going off that, that verse, just how it sounds, if if God chose based on our works, then who would get the glory for that? I mean, Paul makes it clear through many of his epistles that um, God specifically chooses us not because of works so that we would have no reason to boast. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the glory that God gets and obtains from, from um, ordaining whatsoever comes to pass by glorifying himself, raising up Pharaoh by bringing all that to pass, he gets the glory from that. Gets made, and we have like a, we have a, just a, we think so antithetically to that just because anything that doesn't start with us, we cannot accept whatsoever. Everything that um, doesn't center around us or that, that emphasizes the free will of a gracious and sovereign God and not ourselves, we still can't. We still can't get to the bottom of it. Um, just, uh, I'm losing my train of thought too. You? The great thing is, Josh, when Grant and Carter lose their train of thought, they're still better than the rest of us when they have our train of thought. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. That's 100% true. Yeah, what would you say? 
yeah, Josh think, on this. I think you nailed it. I th and going back to your point, we've got to be careful, I think, wanting fairness. Yeah. I think it, this doctrine reorients our thinking about who God is and about who we are. And if we are thinking this is unfair, I think an important place to start is to think about what we rightly deserve. And then God's mercy begins to shine forth and uh, that's why we come and sing. We praise him, we love him for who he is and what he's done in electing us unto salvation and showing us mercy despite what we ultimately deserve. Yeah, I think it was Shriner, probably others that did today. The shocking thing is not that he didn't save Ishmael and Esau and every unbeliever. That's not the shocking thing. What's the shocking thing? The shocking thing is that he saved anybody, right? that he would send his son. And we can go back to 832. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, so that while we know him, and he's going to graciously give us all things. That's the shocking thing. Not that um, people were not saved, but that anybody saved. And so I think Mark uses the, um, the illustration of beggars, that if there were ten beggars, and uh, you saw them, um, it's not like you necessarily owe any of them anything, but you could give some a lot, some others not so much, some others nothing, and you're really not wronging any of them. It's not that you owe them. And certainly we come, and Carter, I think you laid this out nicely, we come with this idea sometimes that God owes us salvation, right? That he owes us something, and that's the wrong way to think about it. And certainly... If he treated us as our sins deserve, we would all know for sure that we have no um, business having a relationship with him. I love what Sproul says. Sproul says uh, with his classes when he's teaching in Romans that he teaches Romans 1 through 3 and everybody's in complete agreement. It's like, oh yeah, depravity. Go back to chapter 3 just because uh, just it's been six months since we've been there probably. But look at what he says. Um, you read chapter 3, verse, oh, starting 10, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And he says, none of his students have a problem with that. Like, that's just total depravity, we understand that, right? But then, once we get to Romans 9, all of a sudden, we kind of think somehow we're good enough to possibly use our will to choose God. And he says, no, we've got to remember. We've got to remember that our depravity is uh, uh, a really a foundation in this, Grant. I don't think I have much to add, but um, this idea of it not being fair, I remember Mark in his little, he has like a 10-minute or 20-minute um, upper room film thing that he does on Romans 9, just sort of giving the overview of it. And he says that if you are sort of on that trend of thought after reading about the twins, because with the twins, it's um, they were both pretty bad later in life. So it's, it's not like God is looking down the path of time that we we talked about in the golden chain and seeing some sort of better response from Jacob than he saw. And he's going back and saying, okay, I'm going to pick Jacob. Or the same thing with us for our salvation. He's not looking down and seeing some sort of faith apart from himself in us and then picking us because that doesn't elicit the response that we get in verse 14 there's nobody would would um 
say there is injustice in God looking through the tunnel of time and seeing good works in someone and then going back and choosing that one. They earned it. They earned the good choice. But he doesn't say that. He says in 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So that's the thought process. Mark says if we're, if we're thinking that's not fair, he, he chose them apart from anything to do with them. They had done nothing either good or bad in the womb, and he chose one and, and passed over and did not choose the other. Um, surely that's injustice is the thought process. And Paul, he said, Mark says, you're, you're reading Paul right if, if that's what you're getting at. Because that's what he introduces in, in 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's unconditional election. There's no condition to the election of God. That's one of the core tenets of, of salvation, unconditional election. There's nothing in us. There's nothing in the twins. There's nothing in us uh, that would elicit God to choose us. It's all of him and his mercy to choose us. So, well, that's a good grant. Thank you. That if it ever comes to our mind that, wait, could God be unjust? There's a, And uh, MacArthur says this ten times. What a ghastly thought, right? He goes back to no means. What a ghastly thought to think God would be unjust. And so he's going to go on to, once again, prove, no, 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 no. That can't be. It cannot be that God's unjust. And God is the one that decides what's just and what isn't. And that's what he's decided. And for the, the, the purpose of election might stand. And Josh, you were talking for God to get the glory. Can you help us there? Maybe Carter can. Um, but I can try. I do think when we think about the doctrine of election, we see it here in Romans. You mentioned Romans 3. Uh, Romans 3.11 says, No one understands, no one seeks for God. That was true of the Jew, the Gentile, and all of us who have ever been born on this world. Um, election is, is necessary. Uh, God must first seek. He must first initiate a rescue mission for anyone to be saved. We don't bring anything to the equation other than sin. And so I think ultimately uh, he does get all the glory for that. And that's why we praise and worship him for he hasn't left us in our sin. He hasn't left us in the mire and in the pit of our own sinful ways of life and the things that we used to give our time to and the things we used to love that were so corrupt and so antithetical to who he is. And we were uh, we rejected his Savior until he initiated the heart surgery and regenerates us. And um, I do think such a, I think, worship-inducing doctrine and leads us to go back and thank God for who he is, that he didn't leave us there. His compassion, his mercy uh, is on display ultimately through the gospel, but begins with God the Father in heaven <clears throat> before that, the beginning of time. That's good. Before the beginning of time, I think it was that process that uh, all growing up I had wrong. I thought I put my faith in Christ, then God regenerated me, right? I did a good thing. I did the best act that one could do. Right, But you cannot do that while you're dead in your transgressions and your sins. If we can't see God, if there is no righteous thought or act in us, then that's impossible. But what is possible is this. God regenerates you first. He wakes you up to this great truth. He takes those blinders. Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers so they can't see the glory of Christ. 
once you saw the glory of Christ, once God regenerated you first, then you did put your hope in Christ, right? You did do something. And one thing that we absolutely don't want to fall into in this is that this takes away from human responsibility. Humans are absolutely responsible. When you read this, when you read about Pharaoh here, and uh, Carter, I want to come to you here in a second, but read about Pharaoh. The blame is not at all on God for Pharaoh. Pharaoh did what he wanted to do, didn't he? Now, it didn't make any sense. Pharaoh should have obviously made some bad decisions, but that was completely on him. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. There again, it is so clear that it's God's the one who uh, dictates this. So then it depends, and I love verse 16. Could it be more clear than verse 16? So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay? Like uh, Josh said, if we're reading this right, it should be a bit bothersome. Right? It should be that your mind, you think, wait a second, is that unjust? Or, like we're going to get to next week, why does he still find fault in us? Right? Why, how could he do that? We'll get to that. We'll get to that next week. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so Pharaoh's actions were to show God's power. So then he has mercy on whom he, whoever he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. Carp? Yeah, I think it's evident when God chooses that the one whom God has chosen demonstrates that he too loves God. So God's choice is confirmed in, in the life. And the one God rejects, likewise, rejects God. It's not like God brings people kicking and screaming into heaven, like one professor told R.C. Sproul, brings people kicking into heaven and then rejects those who desperately want to get in. That's not at all what happens. Pharaoh really did have an inset, had an, an evil broiling within his heart, and that was hardening. The, uh, the Egyptians themselves, the people, were hardened by the Lord. They themselves felt hatred for the Israelites. And it, all this was so that they would stand in God's way and God would overcome them. And through that would make the, all the hearts of the, all the other nations of the planet melt. And we can see that come to fruition just in Joshua 2 when, um, was it Rahab? They, they had sent the spies in and Rahab had told the, the spies, look, I know who you are. Your name has been proclaimed throughout the whole planet because of what God did, what the Lord did for you in Egypt. And everyone's heart is melting because y'all have come close to us. Um, I think that God's purpose was achieved through raising up Pharaoh. And that, that's ultimately God's prerogative. That's his, that's his divine choice, his divine right. Um, we don't have that right, and that's a little bit bothersome to us. Hmm. But ultimately, it comes out. For those who trust in Christ, for those who love and seek the Lord, He has chosen for our good. And ultimately, those who are who are passed over 
will serve to glorify him as well. Yeah, and it's tempting, to, um, I think, to try to say, well, wait a second, could this passage be teaching something other than that? We know it isn't by the questions Paul asks. He goes back to these same things that would bother you, I hope they bother you. Wait a second, that doesn't that sound unjust? Whoa, how could it be that God would blame Pharaoh if God's the one that did the hardening? Right? Paul asked those questions, which proves that's what he's trying to teach. Joshua Grant? Yeah, I, just, I think 7 through 13, Paul walks this through, gives us some couple case studies, and then he pauses to deal with these two major objections. And like what Graham mentioned, uh, we're reading the text right. If we maybe stop and pause there, and Paul, like the master teacher, pauses and helps us walk through these objections. And the first one really is, is God unjust? And his answer, like uh, we've heard Paul say before, is a thousand times no. It's the strongest negative assertion there in um, 14. Uh, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And then he walks through God's prerogative to have mercy, mercy and compassion on those he has mercy and compassion to. Good, great. I love this. This is it's so interesting. MacArthur calls it um, a humanly unreconcilable tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Humanly unreconcilable. So I hope that we're never. I would think it would be a little arrogant on our part to say, "Oh, I completely understand this." This is all making complete sense in my mind. I think it's very clearly taught, right? I don't think there's any doubt of what the passage says. To completely grasp it would mean that we have a similar mindset as God does. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are God's ways than our ways, and God's thoughts higher than our thoughts. Jake? What I find really amazing is just multiple times it mentions I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. It's because of God's mercy. And I don't know, I was thinking about it because I was reading Romans 8 earlier and it's like, here are these wonderful promises. And then in Romans 9 it's like, I can't, how can I take these promises for granted when it was completely by mercy? Yeah. That's really good, isn't it? Yeah. And I hope that's where our mind goes to this. Even if it's bothersome to our intellect, that we go back to what it's really trying to do. And Carter, you've laid this out nicely, is to bring God glory, to show um, to show that God's glorious um, in this. Grant, would you say, how can this practically, how has this doctrine practically changed your life? Because it wasn't something you wrote necessarily grew up with either, I guess. Uh, A little bit? If I, no, no, I don't think so. I think the pastor, my childhood pastor who... Uh, did not believe this and did not teach this uh, has since come to believe it and teach it now maybe 20 years later which huh. is amazing to hear um, my parents came to it through their own uh, process of just reading the Bible um, and any introduction I had to it I had no ears to hear even though I was probably taught rightly by them but uh, it was pretty prominent I think for a lot of young men it's pretty prominent when they come to salvation to um, to really rest on this doctrine and want others to see it and understand it as well uh, from Scripture. And I guess I probably had a wrong view when I came to faith of just wanting people to like 
this is the way it is. This is the way it is. I think people call it the cage stage where you should just be put in a cage because you're just so harping on God's sovereignty and election. Um, but I think, like thinking back onto it now, I'm just trying to think, how is it life-changing? Um, I just, I know it doesn't depend on me. Uh, there's nothing I could do to earn it. There's nothing I can do uh, to get out of it. I'm in the golden chain. I'm going to be finally glorified. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was reading uh, God's promise to Jacob about something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but he said, I will be with you and I'll go with you. Uh, and something about that was just emotional to me. To, just the fact that God has set his affection on me um, for no inherent thing about me that was affectionable. He just did it out of his own mercy. Mm-hmm. And now he is my father and he will go with me. He will be with me through all things. And I don't know, it's just, it's a comforting thing. I think um, it changes the way I approach uh, how I work, um, things that happen at work, things that happen in life. I think suffering obviously would be a huge one. I don't know how you would approach it without a sovereign God. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are just a few things. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, what Grant mentioned is interesting, isn't it? If someone argued that, hey, wait a second, I'm really the one that chose God, then it would be possible, conceivably, that they could unchoose him too, couldn't they? They would be the one then that would have the prerogative to choose not to believe in God if they were the one that chose him. So I think that that's pretty big in the doctrine of perseverance that if we truly believe that God um, chose us before the beginning of time he's not going to let us go John 10 right he has us in his loving right hand he's not going to let us go nothing can separate us from the love of God those are all principles that are tied into this glorious doctrine I think um, what do you go by Josh <laughs> most days <laughs> um I think this section, at least, when we think about God's sovereignty and election, we see how God-centered salvation is, how it is of him from the start to finish. And um, he revealed, you know, brought conviction of sin. He gives us uh, repentance. He's the one who gives us faith. Uh, he's the one who reveals his son to us. All of a sudden, Scripture goes from a, a dead, boring book to something that breathes life and reveals the very character of God. We began to behold Jesus in the gospel. I mean, we just God accomplished, or God brought about all of these things and is sovereign in all of these things. And I think it's maybe made me see truly how God-centered salvation is and the only good that I bring to the table is, um, I bring nothing good to the table. The only thing I bring to the table is my own sinfulness and depravity. Yeah. Very humbling, card. Yeah, I mean, the first time we, I think I was encountered with it was when y- y'all taught me through, jo- we went through John together. And um, we got to the conversation with Nicodemus about... <clears throat> where the spirit blows where it wishes and you don't know where it comes from or where it goes um, but uh, you hear it sound um, that was unlike anything I've ever heard in my life and to think just come to realization I, I mean I, I vaguely remember asking just so our salvation is grant like we can't we don't really have any control over it at all do we and 
that was just think it was really weird to me at first and I didn't really like it but after thinking about it and the Holy Spirit illuminating the truth for me I think it just molds a greater affection for Christ because it just why on earth out of all the people um, out of all so many would Christ come and die for a sinner I mean especially one of billions who have ever lived why would he set his love on someone who's never you know has, hasn't even existed it just paints it just makes his beauty just shine so much mm-hmm. um, that's been my experience that's good Sproul kind of insinuates that if any of us are kind of put in a corner here that really deep down we truly believe this because if if someone said it was really up to them if it was their will right ultimately that the will was the ultimate then if you pushed them on that to say well then why did you choose christ rather than someone else the answer to that is really uncomfortable what would they have to say i was a little sharper than the next guy i was a little more godly i was just lucky i was what are you gonna say to that so I think all of us, once we think through this, once we see how clearly it's taught in Scripture, come up with the conclusion to say, no, it has to be like this. As many questions as it raises, as much as I don't thoroughly understand it, it does not take away from man's responsibility one iota. But it is clearly taught that God is sovereign in election. And I really appreciate what you guys just said I would just say it has to produce a humility in us it has to that is what Ephesians 2 8 and 9 right so that it's not by our works it's a gift of God otherwise we would be tempted to boast about it and we would have something to boast about but as it is not only was that grace a gift but the faith that he gave us to believe he gives us faith to believe the gospel one more quick thing is I think it really frees us up to evangelize um, in a um, aggressive way, if you will, because it's not us that saves anybody. It can't be, right? As a Bible teacher at school, I w- it would be a terrifying job if I believed I had to convince the students, right? If that was up to me, I don't. I could not. I would have to resign tomorrow Dr. Krause and say I cannot do this the weight on that would be way too heavy but we can evangelize knowing that God has his elect everywhere remember Paul, Mark teaching that about Paul um, that he knew that there were elect in that city and so he was going to go teach that way they would come to love and know Christ it's God's the one and that frees us to tell everybody about the gospel, knowing that God will move on those that he has mercy on, and we can be so thankful for that. Let's pray. Father, what a great joy to come before you, and uh, humbly I hope to admit that this is uh, higher than than our um, understanding, um, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are your thoughts and your ways than our thoughts and ways. And we would confess that today. 
Lord, I thank you for the clear teaching of Romans 9, of Ephesians 1 and 2, of all through the book of John, countless places in Scripture, Deuteronomy 7, where we see that you're sovereign in election. And Lord, I pray that we would believe what we don't always understand and that we would cling to it and we would enjoy it and it would become um, the warm blanket, the comfort, um, that it would uh, humble us to no end so that we would not be haughty um, or not be holier than thou or not be um, self-righteous in the way we see people, but that we would be able to um, approach people and evangelize people with this great truth, knowing that you're ultimately the one that does the work. Lord, as we head into um, the glorious and maybe even um, equally challenging passage next week, we pray that we would be able to uh, grasp these great truths in a way that would um, bring you great glory. And I do thank you that ultimately you receive all the glory from our salvation or anyone's salvation. Um, and we're so thankful um, for not treating us as our sins deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Have a great week.